Good morning. So uh, just by a show of hands, how many of you have heard Micha already this weekend? Okay. And, okay. And by a show of hands, how many of you have liked hearing Micha <laughs> this weekend? Okay. And by a show of hands, how many of you like the land and people of Israel? Okay, now, so here's my question. If you like Micha, and you like what you've heard, and you like the land and people of Israel, I want to make a radical suggestion, <laughs> which is that you go to Israel to hear Micha, and go to Israel to hear Micha and to meet his students at Ain Pro. You know, the one thing that we need more of in this world is inspiration. If you have an encounter and you meet somebody, especially young people, especially connected, engaged Jews in their 20s. And you say, oh my God, the future is going to be amazing. Like you meet people and you say, you know, whatever issues there are in the world, whatever issues there are in my world, I just had a booster shot, as in an injection of hope and optimism and incredible affirmation of life. So I want to invite you to seriously consider going to Hartman this year, meeting and hearing Micha. Micha gives us talks many, many times at Hartman. And we meet every year about 10 of his students, 10 of his disciples. And it is literally a booster shot. Not disciples. Of, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, students, yeah. alumni, uh, who are... Um, <laughs> who are living embodiments of, uh, they care about the world, they work on the world, and they're not angry, and they're not antagonistic, and they're not echo chambery. They, they build bridges with people. And so I just want to invite you. So the dates this year for Hartman, Hashem made a miracle. You can go to Israel. You can get inspired. And you can be home by the 4th of July so that you can do the 4th of July in your chosen New England location. It's June 25th at, through July 2nd. And I want to say one other thing before I hand over the, the floor to uh, Micha. Hartman's faculty, Danielle and his colleagues in New York and in Israel, have an unerring sense, unerring sense, for how to make the theme pulsate, vibrate with what's going on. Like, what's the most urgent issue? What's the hardest issue? What's the most controversial issue? What's the issue that we could most profit from thinking slowly, deliberately, and thoughtfully about? Okay? And so this year, they just announced the theme. So here's what, if somebody says, I am a nationalist, I am a proud nationalist, how should we think about that? And their theme this year is basically on nationalism and tribalism. And thinking thoughtfully is assertion that I am a nationalist. How should we think about that? What is good about that? By the way, there's a lot that's good about that. Yoram Chazoni, who is an Israeli, just spoke last month uh, in praise of nationalism. There's a lot that is good about being a nationalist, a lot that is good about being a nationalist. Yoram Chazoni wrote a whole book about it. Actually, there wouldn't be a state of Israel without 
nationalism, right? Without nationalism, there is no state of Israel. So there's a lot that's good about being a nationalist. What are the challenges with being a nationalist? So again, Hartman picked a great theme. June 25th to July 2nd, home for July 4th, and you get Micha, and you get students of Ein Prat. It's just the best week of the year. Micha Goodman, wow. thank you. That was a great sell. That was a great pitch. I want to go. <laughs> so thank you all for coming out in a rainy day. Thank you very much. I want to speak today, this morning, about the roots of a secular religious divide in Israel. I think the, the, the divide, this divide, this clash between secularism and religion in Israel is very interesting on many levels, and it has surprising historic roots that go deep into to, to, to our tradition. And after I present this division, and after he presented, whoever was there, um, the division of right and left, and after we spoke about the challenges of modernity and tradition, so um, I'd like to have more time to open this up to your questions about the different divisions, about Israel, about things that are happening today. Throughout the weekend, people were asking me questions about Gaza, right? About Net everybody wants Netanyahu, what's going on with Netanyahu. <laughs> I don't know if you heard the news this morning. You hear the news this morning? So th there's three cases against Netanyahu. And the third case, the biggest case, what they called Case 4000. Um, that's what they call Tikarbat al Case 4000 is now um, uh, the recommendation of the police is, to, um, is, to, is for him to be persecuted for bribery. And he's a prime minister. So it's very interesting. I mean, interesting is whatever. Yeah. And it, but very interesting. If, if things are interesting in Israel. So, from the most, so I'll open this up after I present some thoughts. Anywhere from philosophy and Judaism to contemporary politics. Everything is free game. Anything goes. And because I know yesterday I didn't, I didn't, I felt uncomfortable. Yesterday, the first time, the f whoever, who was here at 8.30 yesterday? So thank you. There was no Q&A, right? It was only me talking. And then after Kiddush, no Q&A, only me talking. Now, which is a little bit ironic because I'm speaking about listening <laughs> and conversation and sacred disagreements. But just listen to me, Okay. <laughs> Okay, so, so I, I'll try to divide it like half and half. So, um, so we'll try to do more Q&A to compensate. And, and so there's an interesting book by Aleph Bet Yoshua, A.B. Yoshua. You're acquainted with Aleph Bet Yoshua, an important Israeli thinker and writer. It's called Bizchuta Normaliut, in favor of normalcy, of living normal Jewish lives. And it's his argument, it's his pitch for Zionism and for living in Eretz Israel. And his whole book is a massive critique on diaspora jury, not only today, but throughout the past 1,900 years. And what he shows in numbers and in facts, that Jews like to pray towards Eretz Israel, towards the land of Israel. But they never really liked to go live in the land of Israel. And 
It's, and he says that he thinks they asked for Jews are, don't, are not real, don't have a healthy national impulse. Again, Hartman nationalism. Don't have a healthy national impulse. They're not drawn to the land. They don't want to become normalized. And it's a critique. A few years later, one of my teachers in Hebrew, Avi Ravitsky, wrote a different article that explains the same data. Why is it that for 1,900 years, Jews didn't move to Israel? And it wasn't only because of historic and political conditions. It was they chose. They immigrated to so many countries around the world, but not to Israel. They went to Kuchin in India. They went, they went all over the world. They did not move in big numbers to Israel. And the gap between praying to a land but never choosing to live on that land is a question Ravitsky offers a very interesting answer. He argues, well, when you pray to the land and you learn about the land and the halacha of the land, it's the holy land, Eretz HaKodesh. What does Kodesh mean in Hebrew? What does holy mean? What is the meaning of something being sacred? So according to biblical theology, HaKadosh is what you don't touch. The holiest word in the Hebrew language, that's God's name, has four letters, is the name we're not allowed to pronounce. The holiest square yard in the Kodesh Kodeshim, the holy of holies, is the yard you're not allowed to enter. Only one man, one day, one moment can, right? Kohen Gadol, Beyom Kippurim. Yes, you can't enter, you can't say the holy word, you can't enter the holy, the holy space. In Exodus chapter 33, Shmot Lamed Gimel. No, it's not Shmot Lamed Gimel, it's Shmot Yutet, sorry, it's, it's, it doesn't matter. Yeah? Exodus 19. Somebody always checks if I write, have the right quotations. <laughs> you didn't get it right. You didn't get it right. I, before internet, I could pull anything off. Just say any chapter. <laughs> but now, pretty second. <laughs> so, so, that's why I'm against technology, by the way. <laughs> so, um, it says, Hagbel etahar vekidashto, which means Mount Sinai is holy, and therefore, you can't, it's untouchable. You can't. God tells Moses to tell the people, don't touch the har. Don't get close to the mountain. Why? Because it's holy. We can go on and on. I just want to make one point. If something is holy, you stay away from it. If something is holy, it's untouchable. Ravitsky argues, it's Aleph, but Yeshua got it wrong. He asks, how is it that they believe that the land is holy and they don't go live there. Ravitsky's answer is, it's because they believe the land is holy that they don't want to live there. If it's holy, you stay away. If it's holy, you don't touch it. Now this idea, this, if you want, a paradox, it's dafka because we believe in the sacredness of the land that we stay away from the land. But as many, um, um, manif as many manifestations theologically. Now, I'll give you 
Like some people believe throughout the generations that God, that in the land of Israel, that's where God has direct providence. This is let's say a position of Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra and Nachmanides and other versions like mystical Jews. This is where God is like, has direct providence. Other places in the world, indirect providence. Now, here's a question. Where would you want to live? <laughs> where God is watching or when God is looking the other way? Where would you want to live? <laughs> where would you want to live? Nachmanides, it's scary to, <laughs> you know, Nachmanides lifted a, a bit, a notch, and I have to go a little bit into Kabbalah. But before I go into Kabbalah, I just want to say, the Mekubalim, we say that don't take what we say literally. They say, Kivyachol. So with that reservation, I want to say something about Kabbalah, but let's not take it literally. There is a belief called, that academics call theurgy, that when we perform the mitzvot, that has an impact on the divine world. It creates harmony in the divine world. According to Kabbalah, let's not take it literally, but they still say this, there's different aspects of the divine world called sfirot. Those aspects need to be in balance, but they're out of balance. Now it's a problem because our entire world is a reflection of the divine world. Therefore, when the divine world is out of ba balance, so our world is out of balance. So if the mitzvot, not literally, but they still say this, by performing mitzvot, you balance the divine world, the sfirot. As a result, what are you doing when you're doing mitzvot? You're, you're creating harmony in, the world, in this world because it's a reflection of the divine world that we are repairing. It's a very radical way of thinking of mitzvot. They say tzorech gavoha. It's a divine need that we practice the mitzvot. Now let's think about it again. If the mitzvot repair the divine world, what do averot? Do. Avirot, when you um, sin, when you, when you commit sins, what does that do to the divine world? It breaks the stability. And if this whole world is a reflection of the divine world, so guess what happens to the world when we all sin? It doesn't only ruin our own lives, it ruins the entire cosmos. So be careful out there. Okay, so this is a, a Kabbalistic theory. And then Nachmanides comes around and he says, do you know where the mitzvot have a theurgic effect? Only in Eretz Israel. Which means outside of Eretz Israel, if you perform mitzvot, it doesn't affect God. If you do sins, it doesn't ruin anything. He says, you still have to do mitzvot outside of Eretz Israel, but you know why? It's as for, in order to practice but they only have metaphysic impact when we return to Eretz Yisrael. Okay? Okay. So in light of these three thoughts, 
The land is sacred, and you respect the sacredness by keeping a distance. That's where there's direct providence, and you're afraid so you don't go live where there's providence. It's the only land where the mitzvot metaphysically work. And sins metaphysically can disrupt cosmic harmony. So what would that so what would be the most rational choice of living outside of Eretisle? Right? Like I'm not gonna go live in a place where any step I do can change the could could create cosmic chaos. That's too much anxiety for me. I'm not going there, right? Okay. But that also means something else. It means that the people who do go live in Eretz Yisrael, believing in all these assumptions, how do they perceive themselves? They could do it. They could do it. Which means, naturally, the people drawn to the land of Israel were the most from strict Jews in the Jewish world. People said, I'm going there to surrender to God. There is a midrash by someone in the 16th century called it's, uh, the Shla. I think it's a Shla. You're not going to check it, so it's okay. <laughs> Where he says, why is it called Eretz Kna'an? The land of Canaan. So there's a interesting play, pun here. To surrender in Hebrew is to, how do you say to surrender in Hebrew? It's Eretz Canaan because you can only live there when it's the land where you, if you're willing to surrender everything you have to God. So Eretz Israel is a magnet for the most, most halachically strict Jews. For the people who feel like we can do it, we can live strictly according to halacha, we won't violate the mitzvot, we have that confidence. We're going to move there. Anyone that thinks that you can't completely surrender to God, please don't live in Eretz Yisrael. The 18th century, or in the 17th, and the, no, and yes, in the 18th century, there was another layer added to this, a messianic layer. If we perform the mitzvot in Eretz Yisrael, that has an effect on God. So if we, if a lot of people will perform, Passionately, the mitzvot, where they matter. What will that do? That will bring the Mashiach. So we have more and more aliyot to Eretz Yisrael. If you ever hear the aliyah in the 19th century of the descendants of, of the Talmidim of the Gaon Mivilna, of the Vilna Gaon, and also some of the disciples of the, those are real disciples, of the Besht, the Baal Shem Tov, they come to Israel as a part of a messianic mission. There's another element added to this in the 19th century, in the second half of the 19th century, in Hungary, there were Hungarian Jews. They were terrified for modernity. Modernity is going to corrupt Judaism, and they want to escape modernity, so they come to Eretz Israel. Eretz Israel is, becomes a place for the most halachic, conservative Jews that either want to be Mashiach or escape modernity. Okay? So Eretz Israel is the magnet for the most extreme brand of Judaism. And that's the Judaism that establishes itself in Eretz Israel. By the way, they don't come to the land of Israel 
to work. Of course not. They come to worship God, not the land. And their communities in the diaspora, they say, exactly, you go and you perform mitzvot in Eretz Yisrael. You study Torah in Eretz Yisrael. And you're doing it for us and instead of us. And what will we do? We'll support you. So you don't go to, to be an art. You go to study Torah in Eretz Yisrael. Live a completely spiritual life. Yes, you're like an agent. That's what you are. So this is like Eretz Yisrael now becomes now the magnet for the most from conservative, messianic, anti-modern Jews. Okay? Again, there's no many brands within Eretz Yisrael in the 18th to 19th century, but I think that but they all share that they're anti-modern, very conservative, conservative I mean conservative with the, uh, the small c, very halachic, very anxious not to get the halacha wrong, very, okay, so that's the kind, and the people that were laid back, more laid back about halacha, about modernity. They stay in the diaspora. A small minority of very strict Jews moved to Eretz land. Till today, the most extreme versions of Judaism are in Eretz Israel, and they are inheritors of this anti-modern tradition. That's only the beginning of the story. Can't do it again. <laughs> That's only the beginning of this story. The second part of this story is that in the beginning of the 20th century, starting around 19, 1904, we have a wave of immigration called the Aliashnia. I'm skipping the Aliashnia. And these are people that felt that Judaism. Is they're suffocating in Judaism. And that they want to liberate themselves from Judaism. And that in the Galut, Halacha is making you a shrunk personality. Because there's restraints of your behavior. And your parents are always watching. And the rabbis are there. And they want to create a different Judaism, a liberated Judaism. A secular Judaism, a Judaism that, according to the, one of the important philosophers of this movement of secular Zionism, Michael Yosef Berdichevsky, is liberated from the tyranny of the past. According to Berdichevsky, to be a Jew is to be a slave of the past. The past means rabbis, sorry, rabbi, halacha, God, books, yeah, this whole image. Like, do you know that according to the Shulchan Aruch? The, probably the most important halachic book. It tries to control. You wake up in the morning, <laughs> and do you know that you can't even choose which shoe to put on first? And after, I think it's, after you choose the shoe, which shoe, if it's right, left, then it tells you which shoe to tie first what clothes you wear, what you eat. Tradition is trying to control every move and they were suffocated and they realized Zionism. Zionism is not about liberating Jews from the control of non-Jews. That's only a part of Zionism. The main part of Zionism is liberating the Jews from the control of Judaism. Nachman Zilkin says, 
זה המרד של היהודים ביהדות. It's the rebellion of Jews against Judaism. And guess where this rebellion against Halacha, God, Rabbis, Judaism is going to take place? In Eretz Yisrael. All the Jews that want to stay with Halacha, you could stay in the Galut. <laughs> But the real rebellious Jews are starting to move to Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you see where this is going, right? 19th century, Eretz Yisrael is a magnet for the most halachic, strict, conser- anti-modern and conservative Jews. 20th century, Eretz Yisrael becomes a magnet for the most rebellious, revolutionary, anti-religious Jews. Both have an ideology taking them to the land of Israel. And what happens when these two <laughs> groups meet? <laughs> Are they like, oh, I'm very curious about... <laughs> That's very interesting. <laughs> really, I really want to hear. Like, <laughs> like, what happens when they meet? <laughs> okay. So, in the, begin- in, the, in the 20th century, the first group were called the Yeshuvah Yeshan, the old Yeshuv. And the... Those passionate, rebellious, secular, so, I didn't go into socialism, but there were socialist elements, Jews were called the Yeshuv HaChadash. And their clash, see what I'm saying? This is, I would say, throughout the world there's a clash between modernity and tradition. But since the most extreme version of traditionalists moved to Israel, the most extreme rebellious Jews moved to Israel, and they both have ideology of living in Israel, their clash was the most, um, it's the most powerful example of the tension we're dealing with till today. And this is how the Yeshuvah Yashan looked at the Yeshuvah Chadash. The old Yeshuv, what we would call today the Charedim, the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, which the ultra-Orthodox in Israel today are much more Orthodox, ultra, than the ultra-Orthodox in America. You know this. Much more extreme. Because this is their roots. They looked at them and they say, we can't believe this is happening. For years, Jews that thought that they can't complete every detail of the halacha out of respect for the land didn't go live there. These people, they're going to disobey every detail of halacha. Where are they going to do it? Dafka on this land? Now think about how dangerous this is. Because if this is a land where sins could damage the divine world, and as a result, the whole world, so the second Aliyah is a, you realize it's a catastrophe. Where do they choose to, to rebel against God in God's land? Where do they choose to disobey the Torah? The only place in the world where the Torah metaphysically works. So this is the rejection of secularism in Europe. Okay, don't be secular. In Israel, you're destroying the world. When the new rebellious secular Jews see the Yeshuvah Yashan, what do they see? This is how they 
called, they thought that the Yas, the Galut Jew, the Galuti Jew, the exilic Jew is passive. His personality is um, corrupted because he's constantly surrendering and he's not living a productive life. That's how they imagined the, ex- the Galut Jew that they're trying to rebel against. But the paradox is, where do they find the Galut, the most extreme version of the Galut as the natives, as the people that were there before them in Eretz Yisrael? So they're looking at each other. They see people who are violating God's mitzvot in God's house. They see people that are the extreme version of the Galut, Dafka, in Eretz Yisrael. And <laughs> there is no way they could even start. There is, no, there is no shared categories that they could use to start understanding each other. And that's the clash. Now this clash has a history. Until today, it's a clash. It's a tension. I don't even think it's a creative tension. It might be a destructive tension. That's tearing our society apart. But if you wanted an to see the roots of this, it has to do with the power of Eretz Yisrael. The power of the land is that it was a magnet of the most extreme secularists and the most extreme religious Jews. And the same land attracted both groups and they clash until today. That is the energy we get from the Holy Land. Okay, we're moving to questions, right? Yeah, we have, we have time, right? We have time. Okay. So, that was my spiel. That was my spiel, trying to understand the roots of the secular religious divide. And now, let's open up for questions. You want to start with the Sfaradim. So, the Sfaradim, this is a... Uh, the Sfaradim are a part of the Yeshuvah Yashan. Some of the most anti-modern from parts of the Yeshuvah Yashan are Sfaradim. There was a yeshiva in Jerusalem called Porat Yosef, which was a part of the yeshiva Yashan. But in the 1950s, when there was a big river of immigration from the new Sfaradim, from the Sfaradim that came from Morocco, Kurdistan, Iraq, Egypt, Khalib, they came to Israel roughly 800,000 800, refugees from Muslim countries when they came, so they bought a different sentiment with them. A much more soft Judaism and a soft Judaism and a moderate Judaism, a Judaism that's not anti-modern on the one hand, but not strictly traditional on the other hand, more flexible, more soft. They bought that with them. But then the two camps saw the Mizrahim and they both tried to convert them. The secular Israelis tried to make them more rebellious the Haradim tried to make them more, you know, anti-modern, more. And they were somehow captured in the middle 
always felt like they're not the real thing. Always felt like they're the compromise. In an interesting twist of events, today many people think maybe they're the real thing. Maybe being extremist is to compromise. So, and today there's different attempts in Israel to try to soften either secularism or orthodoxy, and it might look more like what the Sfaradim bought, the Sfaradim of the 50s and 60s, not of the Yeshuva Yeshan. Yeah. But also, I always want to say, these are all very broad strokes, because within the Sfaradim, there's Yitemani, there's a lot of brands, and also within the Yeshuva Yeshan, there's a lot of brands, and the Yeshuva, yes, but in broad strokes, I think the Sfaradim are the story where they come in the 50s, people try to fit them in different boxes, and now they're becoming a box of their own. Uh, Micha, so uh, we're going to take questions probably, uh, but I want to just ask you, uh, thank you for the fascinating historical conversation about the roots of the division between religious and secular. Could you just update us and tell us where does that stand in 2018? Like what, what has happened? You, you gave us a great historical exposition, and what now? Like to fill in the next 70 years? Or it, well, is there any healing? Is there any curiosity? Or is it just two separate yes. tribes? Is, is it just two separate tribes who basically hate each other? Or is there any healing and yes. unity? So I think that most Israelis aren't there. Are? Are not there. Most, and not only do I think that, there's also polls that show that. Are not where? Are not extremely rebellious or extremely anti-modern. Right? They're not there. But what happens when the majority of people are searching for a way of life which would be very modern and very traditional? To quote, excuse the narcissism, to quote myself. <laughs> this is important. <laughs> I always didn't like people that do that. <laughs> so, yeah, right, right like in my, my talk yesterday, I was, this is a result of many years of thinking about this, how the question, how can modernity heal tradition? How can tradition heal modernity? This is the equation I think we're all looking for. We're all looking for. How can our best modern values help reinterpret our tradition? How can the best of our tradition help us or sometimes save us from the real problems of being lonely and meaningless in Western life. And how can, we, how can we combine this? I think most people are searching for that. But here's the problem. Not just we're only modern, we're only tradition. People are looking for the way to put this together. Most people. But there's a spectrum. People are more emphasizing this side. People. But here's, I think, the interesting the problem. This is what we're trying to deal with. Is that the people in the middle, the right and the left that we were speaking about yesterday, the modern, modern and traditional that we're speaking about now, people in the middle always feel like they're the ones with no words. They're the ones that interp many times interpret their confusion as weakness, as compromise. Because the people, the extremists have clear convictions, clear words, they seem powerful. People in the middle seem like they're mediocre, you know, a compromise weak. And I think our big challenge today, here and in Israel, is two things. How do you take the people in the middle and lift them? Help them understand that they're not a compromise, they're the real thing, and for that you need two things. One, they need words. 
They need categories to articulate themselves. We need categories. And two, we need, um, it's more than words, we need leadership. We need leadership. And that's what I'm, we're trying to do in Israel, is to build an Israeli mainstream where young Israelis that, that, that are searching for, for, that, for that balance, for living modern lives are enriched by Judaism and Judaism that has modern values and living that, that they feel like we're the real thing, the extremists are compromising, and we have words and we have leadership and we belong to a group and we're part of something. I think, so I think most people are there, but they don't, are not proud of the fact that they're there. They don't express the fact that they're there. Politically, the problem with the center is that they're indifferent. Also, spiritually, the problem with the center is they're indifferent. So I think our problems are not numbers. We're not, the extremists don't outnumber us. They outpassion us. Is that a word? Yes. And what we need is not to convince more people to move to the middle. What we need is the middle itself not to be indifferent. Vote for him. Uh, yeah. David. Could you comment a little about the differences between the Haredi groups? Huh. It, 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 seems to, it seems to me that the Mitnagdim are not the same as certain others, etc., etc., or, or do you put everybody in the same pot? That's right. So let me just... <laughs> I don't want to take all the time now for this. This is a big question. So in the... Um, in uh, the end of the 18th century, the, Vil, the Gaon Mivina wrote a, like, a letter, Ktav Hitnagdut, where he said that anyone that is affiliated with the Hasidut is excommunicated. Is excommunicated. And the Mitnagdim, and, and they became Mitnagdim, and they're against the Hasidim for many interesting reasons. They were against the Hasidim. And then a few decades later, like one generation after the Gaon Mivina, after they were so against, the Mitnagdi were so against the Hasidim because they were reform Judaism. They wanted to reform Judaism. In what sense? Not reforming, changing Judaism, but changing what's important in Judaism. Not changing the law, but changing the importance of the law. Putting things above it. Not changing anything in the law, but just saying it's good, but the most important thing is ecstatic dekut. So changing like the inner hierarchy of values. And they found it as threatening, and they're attacking it passionately. And then something happens. Suddenly, there is the Enlightenment movement, the Escala, which is giving birth, birth to secularism, socialism, the real reform movement. <laughs> yeah. And they panicked, and they started rejecting that. And when they started rejecting that, guess what they found as partners? The Hasidim. So they moved from being mitnagdim to the Hasidim to be mitnagdim with the Hasidim. Now they're rejecting not the Hasidim, they're rejecting with the Hasidim the, more, the other brands, what they saw threatening brands of modernity. So ever since then, mitnagdim and Hasidim are on a route where they are getting closer and closer to each other. Today, in 2018, a lot of the characteristics of Hasidim you could find in Mitnagdim, like the worship of their rabbis. Like dancing and singing, like good things and like a lot. 
And on the other hand, a lot of the elements we, we used to found in the Mitnagdim, you see in the Hasidic world, where they take learning more seriously. So there's a lot of similarities. But even though theologically they're very, very similar, they are still keeping their, their separate, separation from each other. There's Lithuanians, there's Hasidim. Within the Lithuanian world, it's divided into different yeshivot, and there's tension there, and the Hasidim world is divided into different chatzirot, different um, like rabbis that they belong to, and there's a lot of tension. So today this tension is not theological anymore, it's not halachic, it's sociological and political. It's political differences, they won't go to the same schools, but it's because they belong to that rabbi, they belong to that rabbi. So it's a process where theologically the gaps are blurring, but politically they're very, they're very much still there. Wow. Okay. No, they're not voting as a black anymore. I care. I'll say that's. They're actually changing that. Carol. Yeah. Thank you, Micha. I loved your history. Thank you. Of of how we how we got there, but I guess the question I have is this next layer is where do we fit in? That we are expected to support the state of Israel, we're expected to have this attachment to Israel, and yet there's this battle going on within Israel that has implications for us. Mm-hmm. We just um, the relationship between like the kind of Temple Emmanuel Jews and Israel. The way I see it, it would have the following history. In 1967, American Jews, the way Jonathan Sarna describes it, he's from this neighborhood, right, Jonathan Sarna? Yeah? Describes it like Israel became like the religion of American Jews. Like suddenly, my father that's from Springfield, Massachusetts, went to public school, and he said to me that till the Six-Day War, they would say, hit the Jew, hit the Jew, hit the Jew. But after the war, he comes to school and someone said, we should hit like the Jew. Okay? It was a moment of, now I'm, I'm sure many of you remember this moment, right? Six-day war. And for, it actually lasted for a decade. It was the Entebbe moment. Even the Yom Kippur War. Is an ins- Yom Kippur War, by the way, is considered in Israel our biggest victory. Our largest victory. Because it's a story of a comeback, right? It's a comeback. Like from nowhere, we came back and we, it wasn't, we did, in 67, we surprised them and we won, okay. In 73, they surprised us and guess what? We turned it over and we won again. So, so that was a decade where people looking at Israel, shocked, astonished, inspired, and proud. And pride is an emotion where you feel, when you're proud of someone, you like identify, you're, 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 you're like a fan of a team. Never says the team lost, right? A real fan, it doesn't say the team lost. What do they say? We lost. It's not the team. We won. Because being a fan <laughs> means that like, your identity expands into what you admire. So it becomes a part of the American identity. Now today we're going through something very interesting where I know we're going through like, the sense of being a fan is lost. The sense of being proud is a little bit lost, especially young Americans. And I know this is something you're dealing with. I want to share with you this from the Israeli side. What does it mean when there's a sense that Americans used to be like our fans and admire us and then they're like looking at us and either embarrassed, which is the worst, or indifferent? Like what does that mean? 
So the best way to think about this, think about, I'm sure you have these stories in America, like a celebrity that have a lot of fans. And one day, he or she wake up in the morning and they realize they're not admired anymore. What do celebrities go through when that happens? What do they go through? Depression. Suicide. Yes, actually in Israel, one of, one of those people committed suicide. They became violent and committed suicide. Like they go, the first impulse would be to fight for it back. Love me again. Admire me again. I think that's the mistake that Israel is doing. Israel is saying, admire us again. We're amazing. Really, we are. We're still the Entebbe. But we changed the narrative. Back then, we were, we could do the impossible, like, militarily. Now we're doing the impossible technologically. We're the startup nation. We're amazing. Please, admire us again. We want it back. We want it back. I think Hasbara is a mistake. Sorry, Hasbara, Israel doing Hasbara for Jews is a mistake. Hasbara advocacy. Advocacy, showing how amazing, how we never make any mistakes. How everything we did in Gaza is great. Everything is great. I think we should think about a different, and this is coming back to your question. We should think, I think, the next stage after the admiration lost, instead of moving to try, try to fight for the admiration back, we should think about a different, a more mature relationship. Partnership. Partnership. Now, when you're someone's partner, you can't really admire your partner. Because you think someone is perfect, you can't partner with that person, right? Because there's no room for you. You're just a fan. Partner means, you know, you, get a, you can only partner with someone that you feel like he doesn't get everything right, right? <laughs> I think the fact that Israel screws things up is an opportunity for this relationship. It's an opportunity. We don't have to pray, you know, the best, the most ethical army, the moral army in the world, the best thing. No, the fact, it's not an all or nothing game. Either you're, imagine, what is sick? It's such a, think, talk about dichotomies. Either you admire Israel or you're disenchanted and it's a disgrace and you're embarrassed. No, a partner's, like to be someone's partner, I think you need two things. One, to really like your partner. And two, to realize he's not perfect. Right? Israel, I think what Israel needs you as partners, and I think you need Israel as partners, which means we're pretty cool. <laughs> right? We're not, you know, we don't always get everything right. We're completely not perfect. And that's how you, that's a partnership. So the fact that we are struggling to figure out, I think the biggest challenge is to cure the divide through a passionate mainstream. Politically and spiritually. That's how we cure the divide. And this is where we need you as partners to build this. You guys get this. Temple Emmanuel gets this. You guys get this. You guys got it before us. So this is how I think that this is, this is, this is, this is how I think this is exactly how the partnership should look like. Vote for him. <laughs> Joni. I'm not running. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, oh, the rabbi is. <laughs> you you talked about the um, the moderates and how they don't really have a voice and they don't seem to have too much courage. 
And then you spoke yesterday about Facebook and how Facebook really reinforces all of our own thoughts because it's, but I, because, you know, the, because of the algorithms. But I don't do Facebook, but what I do is I listen to media that reinforces what I think. And I find that the media sometimes gins it up with me. They, they, because I would listen to people more on the left, they're, they're getting me angrier. So they're not being moderate in their views. And then, then you, so it doesn't encourage the middle to come forward because they're yes. saying the middle is weak. So what are you supposed to do about that? How can we get the moderates to feel that they have more strength and get them to talking? Because I'm sure the same problem occurs in Israel. Yes. Yeah, w um, there's an Israeli um, researcher of Facebook. And he figured out the algorithm of, of Facebook knows something about us that we, the emotion of a rage is something that we're actually searching for. It turns out that when you have rage and it's holy rage, like rage because you feel you're right, that emotion creeping up, we get a high from that emotion. <laughs> this makes sense to you guys? You get high from having holy rage. And like rage when you're against someone because they're ideologically wrong. And because we are, that's a high we get from holy rage. And Facebook knows we're searching for that high. What does Facebook give us? So let's say if you write a post filled with rage and a post which is like, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the algorithm on Facebook immediately will know to feed everyone rage because that's what they're looking for and that will keep them on. And as a result, Facebook is inducing rage. To, and I think there's no way around this. This has to come back. This is it. Real people meeting face to face. This has to come back. This is what creates civilization. This that was always done. Now, the question is, what's the role of social media to help us do this? You all know how to come here today because you sent an... No, no, no. Email, right? Right? If social media... Yesterday we spoke about Sherry Turkle. Is it your master or your servant, right? If social media replaces face-to-face, -face, it's going to tear us apart and tear the middle. But if it's something that enforces, that enables, like enables, like there's an event, please come. And then, and then, you, sh and then, and then you, you take photos on the event and you share it and people are reminded of how amazing it is to meet face to face. And it's at your service. It builds societies, it builds cultures. But nothing can replace this. This is who we are. We are hunter-gatherers. This is who we are. This is what we need. The real thing, face to face, feeling each other, listening to each other, uh, surviving awkward moments, not controlling communication, messy communication. This is what builds, this is what makes happiness. This is what builds resilience. This is what builds healthy society. And this is where the middle will come from. F but when our conversations, when, when Facebook doesn't enable face-to-face -face conversations, but when it replaces it, then you have the phenomenon happening today in Greece and in Italy and England and here in America where, where the middle 
is going is losing and people are becoming more and more extreme and not understanding each other anymore and we have to I'm not saying reject Facebook I'm saying use Facebook use Facebook in order to meet face to face there must be a pun here with Facebook and face to face thank you yes I'd like to um, just mention that there's an element missing from your history which is First of all, why were the Jews not going to Israel? The Roman Empire prevented us living in Israel. Then the Crusades made it very dangerous to live in Israel. Then the Turkish Empire. So it wasn't just that Jews were afraid to live there because it was so holy. Bringing this to today, where is your account of 20% of the population? The Christian Arabs and the Muslim Arabs. How do they fit into our picture? So two things. One, the argument of Aleph Beit Yoshua and Avi Ravitsky is based on the fact that there were times in history where it was possible to immigrate to Israel peacefully and that Jews immigrated to places which were more dangerous than Israel. So there has to be something beyond physical, political circumstances that made people reject Israel and Ravitsky's argument, they rejected it not because they didn't believe in the land, but because they did believe in the land. And the place of 20% of Jews in Israel, which are not uh, Israelis, which are not Jewish, it's very interesting. It's, it's not a part of what I did today because I'm doing about Judaism in Israel, but um, Israeli, Arab-speaking Israelis which majority of them are Muslims and some are Christians and Druze, they are in a very, very awkward position today. They always were in an awkward position because the Middle East is Muslim as a Muslim majority and it's an Arab majority and the Jews are a minority in the Middle East. And they are a part of the Middle Eastern majority. But on the other hand, the Jews, Israel, Israel, the Jews in Israel are a minority in the Middle East, but we're a majority in Israel, right? Which means that the Israeli Arabs are part of the Middle Eastern majority, but guess what? They are now, in Israel, they are a minority. So as Jews, we are a minority and a majority, and the Arabs are a majority and a minority. You follow this? Okay. So then, there, so, 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 okay, so this has a lot, so on their side, they're always torn, what are we first? We belong to the majority, Arabs, Muslims, that's what we are. Are we part of this very interesting state, Israel? We're part of the, like, what are we? What are we? And that question is obviously tearing Israeli Arab population into two camps. Actually, they say it's four camps because there's a religious element here, and, and their intention. I don't think I could give a whole speech about this. I don't know enough about the history and the roots of Israeli Arabs, but there is a tension between, there's been a very interesting poll by the Hamachona Israeli Demokratia, the Israeli Democracy Institute, I, the Israeli Democracy Institute, which shows that roughly a large, maybe 40% of Israeli Arabs want to become more and more Israeli, not Zionists, but Israeli, and roughly the second half 
wants to become more and more Palestinian, so they're divided into two. Just one last piece, an interesting, an, an interesting piece of information. Lieberman, Avigdor, not Joe, not Joe Lieberman, Yvette Lieberman, you know, an Israeli politician, Avigdor Lieberman, he has an idea that if there'll be a two-state solution, so Israeli cities should become part of Palestine. Where, like, Kfar Qasim, like Israeli cities that are populated by Israeli Arabs, let's just, let's make them part of Palestine, okay? So then they can be a part of their Arab-speaking Muslim brothers. And you know what the reaction of the Israeli Arabs living in those cities were? If we have to choose between living in Israel that we hate or living with Palestine, which we we're Palestinians, we choose to live in Israel. So what does that say? They identify with Palestine, but they would never want to, they want to live in Israel, which they feel. So it's very complicated, right? It's very complicated. Um, Michael, it's just a couple last questions. Can you tell us what you personally think about the nation-state law? Uh-huh. And also tell us about Bibi. <laughs> okay. So that's, okay. <laughs> Bibi. Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister. Yes. Okay. But this, I was asked already a week ago about Gaza. Okay. Okay. So we just speak one day about Gaza. So, so you, you want to articulate your question about Gaza? Give us your analysis of Gaza. <laughs> My analysis of Gaza. I just want to say one thing about Gaza. Gaza is probably, is, is I don't know. Gaza, most Israelis would agree for the following formula regarding Gaza. We want to rebuild Gaza. We want the life in Gaza to be prosperous. You won't find many Israelis that want the people in Gaza to suffer. Yeah, Anyone that thinks that of Israelis doesn't understand. Israelis want the people in Gaza to live better lives than the horrible life that they're living. But if rebuilding Gaza means that the borders are open and then weapons can come into Gaza, so Israelis would say... Oh, now here's the thing. Here's the equation that everyone is searching for. How can you rebuild Gaza without rearming Gaza? That's the question. It's a technical question. I think it could be figured out. It's a technical question. There's ideas of an island and of using Cyprus and boats that come to Cyprus get checked and they move to... There's a, there was an idea of an artificial island, if you read about this. It's a technical question. They have to figure it out. But it's, a, it's not like... There's no real ideological catch here because we all agree what we're looking for. And also the people of Gaza, if you ask just regular people in Gaza, would you like to rebuild Gaza even if it means you won't get to have weapons? What do you think the regular people in Gaza will say? Of course. Here there is a problem that part of the leadership of Hamas, Hamas controls Gaza, but the leadership of Hamas, guess where it lives? Not in Gaza. Okay. So some of them, some of them have, or this is a major problem, that their ethos is not a positive ethos. Ethos, you say? Ethos. It's not a positive one. How do we build our country, but it's a negative one. How do we destroy theirs? But I think most common people have a, they just want to live a, live a good life. So that's something, 
We have to figure out. It's complicated. It's only complicated because of leadership. It's not complicated because of the will of the people. Okay, so now I'll go to. Um, so I hope that answers. So nation state. Uh, wow, this I, this created a lot of conversation here with curiosity and and mutual understanding. Yeah. So nation state was also very very divisive in Israel. Very divisive in Israel. I was very very brief history of the nation state law. In 1992 or three, well, I feel well backwards. Israel doesn't have a, Israel doesn't have a constitution, right? So all it has, it has a, dif, a, a distinction between regular laws and foundational laws. Chukay Yesod. Now, Chukay Yesod are like the principles of the Israeli democracy, and regular laws are like, you know, what's the speed limit? So, in 1992, sometime in the 90s, the Likud government passed a foundational law called Chok Yesod Kvod Ha'adam V'Cheruto. A foundational law that establishes the dignity and the liberty of all human beings. Basically guaranteeing everyone human rights. Which means, now, later on there was a Supreme Court judge, Aharon Barak, that used the foundational law in order to legitimize or not legitimize regular laws. So let's say someone, an MK, um, brings a law to the parliament and they vote for not enabling Israeli Arabs to vote, taking their voting rights away. So the Supreme Court could say, that's against, that goes against. And therefore, that law is illegal. So that law, legislated by the Likud government in the early 90s, is what protects human rights in Israel and enables the Supreme Court to protect human rights from the possibility of the accidental majority in the Knesset that would violate human rights. Okay? Now, some people in Israel are always afraid that we have a foundational law guaranteeing that Israel is a liberal democracy. We don't have a foundational law guaranteeing that we're a Jewish state. There's no balance. Because just like we're afraid of an accidental majority saying that the Arabs can't vote, and then you have a law saying, well, that's illegal law. You have a foundational law saying that's illegal law. What happens if there's an accidental vote saying um, uh, we're canceling the tikva? Canceling the tikva, the national anthem. Or Hebrew is not our national language. Or the biggie, chok ashvut, the law of return. The law of return. Yeah. Those are the basic laws that are guaranteeing the nature of Israel as a Jewish state. And there was no foundational law guaranteeing that. So there was a fear that since we have a foundational law guaranteeing human rights, but not a foundational law guaranteeing that we're Jewish states, so we have to do that. Okay? So for many years, there was many arguments about how that law needs to look like. Um, the problem about this, so, so, so that, that's the background for this law. Um, the problem with this law for many Israelis is not its existence. It's not its existence. 
Like people say, it's a safety belt, just like the first law of the safety belt to protect Israel's human rights. The second is Israel as a Jewish state. We need both laws. The problem is the way it was, there are parts in that law which seem to have discrimination in them. And let's say one of them is how we treat the Arab language. So here's what it says. It says that, Hebrew is the official language of the state of Israel. But 20% are Arabs. And it says that the Arab language has special status. It's very vague. But its position won't be weakened. It won't, be less, it won't have less dominance compared to the situation that was before this law. So some people say, is that discriminating against the Arab language? And so it's very hard to know how this law will play out and how, law, how judges will interpret this law. Benny Begin, son of Menachem Begin, member of the Likud, he was pushing for saying that let's legislate uh, um, this, this uh, foundational law where it says Israel is not, not a Jewish state. Israel is a Jewish democratic state. And it guarantees equality. And if you had the word equality in that law, then it probably wouldn't have been that divisive. If you had the word equality, it's a Jewish state that guarantees equality. So the counter-argument was we already have a law for equality, but actually the word equality isn't, isn't in the other law. So this is a lot of details, and most people don't follow the details. And this was a very divisive law. My personal opinion, we don't need this law. We don't need this law for the following reason. As long as Jews are a massive majority in Israel, Israel is a Jewish state. And if we're not a majority anymore, no law would matter. So if you're a majority, you don't need the law. And if you're not a majority, the law, let's say there's 80% Palestinians. Oh, well, there is a law, so we're going to sing a tikva. Yeah, I don't think, okay, that's, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's not how it's going to go, right? So we don't really need that, need that law. And I think, so that's why we didn't need that law. And by doing that law, it was very divisive and it was very, and uh, my, also I think the reason why they did that law is for political reasons, is that today politicians are playing for their base. And this is how bases work in today's politics. If the left is pissed off on the law, BB scores more points in his base. So the more people were were in rage, holy rage, against this law. It wasn't like Bibi was saying, oh no, they're against me. He realized the more rage from the left, the more his base is unified around him. And I think that's, cynically speaking, this law was not needed. And it wasn't like they brought this law in because there was a national need, but there was a political need. And guess what? It works. Because Bibi is a master and it works every time. He does this law there's rage, and his base loves him. And, every, and, and he gained another wave of popularity. Wow. So can you conclude by telling us what happened with Bibi? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't really know what's happening right now with Bibi, but I'll just tell you how, how I understand the way the secret to Bibi's power. In Israel, majority of Israelis disagree with Bibi's policies. Do you know that? 
Majority of Israelis would like larger separation of church and synagogue and state. Not complete separation, but larger separation. Majority of Israelis can't stand the fact that ultra-Orthodox rabbis control Judaism in Israel. Majority of Israelis can't stand that. Majority of, of Israelis don't think that settlements are sacred. Majority of settlements are for some kind of a territorial compromise, not something big, but there are for some kind. Land is not sacred. That's where most Israelis are. Different than the Netanyahu coalition and government, right? Different. So I can understand that gap, that Israelis are going to vote again for Netanyahu, even though the policies of his government are policies that they don't agree with. How do you accept that? How do you explain that? So a common explanation is that people say there's no one there besides Vivi. It's true. There's many explanations for this enigma, but I think this is the most, I find this one the most important one. Bibi gets something. The past 10 years, politics around the whole world changed. People don't vote for policies anymore. People are not like, okay, which, which candidate represents my, the policies I believe in, and I'll vote for him or her. That's not how it works. People don't vote for ideas. They don't vote for policies. They express their identities. We move from a politics of policies to a politics of identities. What I, I use politics to belong. To express my, and therefore, I don't vote for policy. I vote for my tribe. I vote for my identity. Now, when it comes to tribes, Bibi has a bigger tribe. When it comes to policies, he doesn't have majority in policy. So guess what Bibi is trying to do? Always make it about identity. Always make it about tribes. That's what he did in, in, in this law, by the way. Make it about the tribe. Make it about identity. And politics of identity divides us, right? In Israel, at least in Israel, politics of policy would unite us because we agree on most issues. But politics of identity divide us. So there's irony here. Politics of identity invented by the left is what, keep, is what keeping Netanyahu in power. And you ask yourself, okay, how can you move from identity? So this, I think this has to do with our conversation about religion because in a world where we all want to have a sense of belonging and a sense of identity and a sense of meaning, and if Judaism doesn't offer that to us, if religion doesn't offer that to us, so we go to politics to find identity. I think identity we find in religion. We use politics not to express our identity. Politics is about solving problems, shrinking problems dealing with problems, not belonging. <laughs> so that's why I, th I think people always think religion is a threat to politics. No, it could heal politics. The more we find identity in religion, the more politics could be just about one question, what works? Not about what tribe you belong to, not about what identity you belong to. So... So Bibi is a master in the sense that, um, again, I just want to say one thing. There's many Bibis. <laughs> There's many Bibis. Bibis has his 1996 version, his 2009 version, and his 2015 versions. And there is, I think there is greatness in Bibi. Today, 
my problem with somebody's choosing the politics of dividing to accumulate power, which is horrible. Bibi is complicated. He's complicated. He's very, very complicated. But I think the source of his power, don't make it about policy. In 2015, the Likud didn't even have a platform. You know that? You can't like read the platform of the Likud and know it's policy. It didn't publish one and no one said anything because everybody knows it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. So, Micha, I just want to say thank you. Uh, truly, nobody does what you do. Nobody can do what you do. <laughs> and we are tremendously grateful to you that you did it for us for the 13th time. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, I just, uh, just want to say one last thing. I want to give you an encore performance. One last question before you go and conclude your 13th visit. Give us a bracha, what we can do in this divided time to be helpful to our own land and to our beloved Eretz Yisrael. What can we who are here today do to be helpful to our beloved land and helpful to Eretz Yisrael? And with that, we'll end. One. Always remember there's a distinction between the government of Israel and the people of and Israel. Always remember that. And the government could perform the policies you believe in, you don't believe in. It's the government of Israel, it's not Israel. That's one. Two, um, David Hartman used to say, criticize me like my mother would not like my mother-in-law. <laughs> we're, we're in partnership and we have to say to each other everything the way it is. But, 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 but assume, the, when you criticize someone, you can assume the best. Like, we think you're great, but listen, you got this wrong. Or you can assume the worst. Yeah? So we need to believe in each other. We need to believe in each other. And finally, and most importantly, what we need, what Israelis need for American Jews is for American Jews to be united. And united, I don't mean to cancel the disagreements. United doesn't mean you have to agree between you. It means you have to learn how to disagree. And to disagree, I think, what it means is to react to each other with a lot of curiosity. And there's no real room for anxiety. The fact that in your shul you have... In your synagogue, you have a group that supports one policy or one person and another, one that's another group that supports another person, another policy. doesn't have to create anxiety. What a, can we turn that into curiosity? Because if you'll heal your relationship, that makes Israel stronger. That will make Israel much stronger. That's what we need. We need to model for us and to inspire us how to heal a conversation. That's what we need. <laughs> Thank you, Mika.